thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison, or The Power of Flashback was one episode, which explored the endings of The Godfather Part Two, Sleepers, and that was then, this is now. With the all-access patron membership, you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the Chills at Will podcast logo, and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news you will get a shout-out on a future episode, too. With the VIP patron tier, which is $10 a month, you'll get access to all episodes, a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes, and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020. And it has been an absolute pleasure, 99.999% fun. I've gotten to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell, Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Kochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks, 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Robert Jones Jr., with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Javier Zamora, Tommy Dean, Jose Antonio Vargas, Yasmin Ramirez, Kai Harris, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 150 of the Chills at Will podcast. What a pleasure. What an honor to be joined today by Elizabeth Williamson. And just a little bit of the bio. I'm sure there's a lot more to fill in, but this is from the New York Times website. Elizabeth Williamson is a feature writer in the Washington Bureau and a former member of the New York Times editorial board. She's worked at the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post and spent a decade as a foreign correspondent in Eastern Europe. She is the author of Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, which is published published by Dutton. And we'll be, be definitely be talking about that a lot. First of all, welcome. How are you today? Thanks, Peter. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. I, I um I would love for you to, you know, get maybe shout out the book and the publisher and maybe any favorite places to buy it or anything like that. Sure. Um, so as you said, it's called Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. And it really is about the aftermath of the Sandy Hook shooting and the conspiracy theories that circulated and how that story of how that happened is kind of a foundational story of how false narratives and disinformation have sort of permeated our society in the decades since Sandy Hook. Um, And it's published by Dutton Penguin Random House. Um, You can get it at your favorite bookseller or at the library. Um, And uh, yeah. Well, thank you for the shout out to the libraries as well, right? Yeah, Great no, absolutely. Yes. Well, you know, I would love to to get right into the book. Um, I guess according to the acknowledgments, it seems like the, I mean, in the book itself, um, it seems that it was like a, it was 2018. It was a pitch 
from, is that Elizabeth Bumiller? Am I pronouncing the name correctly? Uh, Bumiller. Yeah. Bumiller. My boss. And, right. Your, your name, your namesake or, you know, whatever. I don't know what's the, what the <laughs> word in English is. In Spanish, they say tocayo. But um, yeah. how did that come about? I mean, is that your usual beat? I know that's probably an old fashioned newspaper term, but like, is that your beat? No, it's still originally? used. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a feature writer in the DC Bureau of the Times. And um, so I'm kind of a free ranger. I do a lot of mm-hmm. profiles and, you know, just stories about various phenomenon, uh, phenomena or things that happen, um, but typically more Washington-based stories. Um, but when this lawsuit, uh, so this was in the middle of 2018, as you said, the families of 10 Sandy Hook victims altogether um, filed um, four separate lawsuits later combined into three um, against Alex Jones. And they were saying that, you know, they, they were alleging that he defamed them because for years he spread the false narrative that Sandy Hook was a so-called false flag operation planned by the government as a pretext to confiscate Americans' firearms. And in so doing, he spread, as he spread that, that um, you know, fake theory, he implicated a number of these family members, several of them by name. Um, and so initially, the first two cases were, the first two lawsuits were filed in Texas, um, where InfoWars, Alex Jones's radio and online outlet, is based. And um, they were filed by um, Lenny Posner and Veronique De La Rosa, whose son Noah Posner is the youngest Sandy Hook victim, um, and by Neil Heslin and Scarlett Lewis, whose son Jesse Lewis died in the shooting as well. Um, Lenny w- is significant in that he's a central character in the book. And he was um, someone who recognized early on, he has a tech background. He had um, dabbled for entertainment in various, you know, sort of, um, you know, non-destructive conspiracy theories. Um, He understood how conspiratorial um, material travels, especially on social media. And he recognized this as not a one-off, that this was not some isolated freakish occurrence, but rather this was the beginning of what became a kind of through line of false narratives over the decades since Sandy Hook. So it went from, you know, false theorizing around Sandy Hook to most mass shootings, then came Pizzagate, um, the great replacement theory that led to the violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, then coronavirus myths, and finally the 2020 election conspiracies that um, led to conspiracy theories that led to the violence at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. So in the book, I trace that through line, you know, making the point that Sandy Hook really was this pivotal story and um, that kind of foretold the world of lies that we live in right now and how those conspiratorial lies have poisoned our national discourse. Right. That, that ended up being a great, you know, pitch or summary of the book. Um, you know, you, yeah, you do such a great job with, with that through line, with those through lines. And, you know, the question about, you know, is, was, were the conspiracy theories, are the conspiracy theories around Sandy Hook, are those, you know, are those, are those new, are those, you know, what's the history behind them? I guess, what is it like? Is it, a, are they features or are they bugs, right? To use like the social media term. Right. right? The computer yeah. Term, right? And I make the case in the book that really they are features right. of, you know, the way we are right now as a society. 
So, so my question is, you know, and I, and I appreciate it so much in the book, you, if they're lies, you call them lies, right? You don't call them falsehoods or, you know, erroneous yeah. I mean, you use the word for the sake of variety. I try to mix it up a little, but they <laughs> so, are lies. Yeah. Right. Right. So I wonder like where, you know, you as a newspaper reporter, you know, ideas, I know objectivity, object objectivity, and you know, the book, I mean, you, you, you don't center yourself on the book as a, as a great writer that you are, it's, you know, it's not about you, but you know, you do use I when you need to and, and all that. Mm-hmm. But I just wonder about like, about um, issues of objectivity where there are things that are so clearly lies. There are things that are so clearly false and things that are so clearly true that the shooting happened, that these people, these kids and, and, and parents and adults were unfortunately killed. I mean, just absolute yeah. horrific tragedy. I wonder yeah. if that line being between objectivity and the fact that you're a human being. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, um, so, so your question is, um, just how you uh, how maintain it, that objectivity, I guess. Objectivity. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I do lose the objectivity at some points. I think toward the end, um, I'm talking with, um, James Fetzer, who is a disgraced, uh, university of Minnesota professor who became, you know, one of the super spreaders of these lies with Alex Jones being obviously the ultimate super spreader, but you know, there was one point where I'm interviewing him um, in my car, actually, you know, outside of his house, because his family was so incensed about how much trouble, you know, his spreading of this conspiracy theory had gotten him into, because he he edited um, a sort of anthology of Sandy Hook lies called Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, real subtle title. Right. And um, he was sued by Lenny Posner. Um, for defamation. And uh, Lenny won a $450,000 judgment against him, which later escalated with court costs up to to more than a million. Um, This is not the kind of money that this retired professor has. Um, And so his family was really angry um, about this, this situation. And moreover, they didn't want him to get himself into any more trouble by talking with the New York Times reporter. But at the end of that conversation, I just was sort of fed up, you know, I just kind of felt, uh, you know, this guy is such a pernicious attention seeker, um, obviously trying to gain some notoriety for himself, um, make, you know, try to build some online fame by spreading these lies. And, you know, he was not, he's not certainly not, um, a solitary, um, Sandy Hook conspiracy theorist. He was a, you know, so-called 9-11 truther. He questioned the JFK assassination put put out there, um, a, a, a just a wildly implausible alternate theory of the case on that one. And he was a, a rabid anti-Semite and Holocaust denier. So he's not an easy person to have a conversation with. And um, I did kind of lose it there, but mm-hmm. I always tried to Gain, you know, to bear in mind the fact that, you know, the reason that I was doing the book and the reason that the families wanted to participate in this project was so that they could sound the alarm about the spread of disinformation in society and what it was doing to not only vulnerable people like them, but to our democracy. And so in order to try and understand how these lies spread and who the people are who spread them and why, you have to kind of take a step back and just not focus on how vehemently you disagree or how angry one any human being can get at the damage done to these families because 
They were followed on the street. People dug through their trash. They looked in their windows. They defaced memorials to the dead. They um, they defaced these families' personal social media accounts. Um, they approached them on the street. They wrote to them at their homes, so they knew that they that these conspiracy theorists knew where they lived. So they terrorized them for years. So if you dwell on that. Um, it makes it almost impossible to talk right. with these people. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. Know, it's, I know it's such a hallmark of, of great journalism like your own that that objectivity throughout the book, you know, builds that repulsion. I mean, you're, t- you're talking about that scene where you describe uh, James Fetzer, you know, he, you know, he's got bad breath and he's, you know, you describe what <laughs> that he's That was wearing. a bit of a cheap shot. Well, <laughs> yeah. well I, I, I'm not going to say they're cheap shots, but I really We enjoyed... were confined in a Chevy Malibu, right. so right. it was hard not to notice. Right. <laughs> Well, I, I enjoyed in a, in a smaller way. I enjoyed the the sick S I C throughout the book. You know, where it's like, hey, come on, you know, th- these people are just speaking this madness. Let's let's call it what it is, right? That's that's like the journalist burn, right? Sick S I C in parentheses. But, but yeah, you know, but, yeah. But re- Misspelling re- seems to be a hallmark of the spread of this material. Right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. But that repulsion comes through. I mean, as it should. I mean, didn't you say there were like four shooters in, in for the JFK assassination, and including like his bodyguard or and, something like that? Yeah, and that you know yeah. this uh, it, wildly improbable cast of characters right. was involved, and you know Hollywood and officialdom, and yeah, it was just you know too too nutty to repeat here. But yeah, really wildly, wildly implausible. Absolutely. And here I am. I'm speaking to you from Dallas. And, um, you know, I'm very near where the whole assassination occurred and where Lee Javier Oswald was incarcerated Mm -hmm. um, before he was killed by Jack Ruby. And so when you actually go through this history, you realize you understand why people raise questions. That's what's Mm -hmm. interesting. You know, if you if you go through the facts of that case, Mm -hmm. you can understand why, particularly a traumatized nation that had never had something quite like this happen in its modern history um, would would raise questions about, you know, various aspects of what happened. But, um, you know, that's that's a different thing entirely. You know, we we can acknowledge that government does lie to us at times and that there are there have been in history conspiracies um, and, you know, that involve lying to the American public. But the departure for these individuals is that they tend to constantly and always um, distrust official narratives, the government, and any bearer of what they deem to be a sort of establishment or an official um, report. Right. You, um, you in, in the middle of the book, and I guess in a way, it's the chronological start of the book, kind of, as far as, you know, when you, you were, you know, part of it. And that's when you, you met up with Alex Jones, for three mm-hmm. hours, right? And that was yeah. guess, through through his ex-wife. Is that correct? Yeah, she was the one who um, first gave me uh, um, the, you know, said, well, here's how you get in touch with them, et cetera. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I had come to town to attend um, actually the very first hearing in the Sandy Hook cases. Mm. And it just happened to coincide um, with a family court hearing um, around uh, a custody battle he was having with his ex-wife. So I, you know, attended that hearing. I asked him after court if he would sit for an interview. He said, sure. And so rather than, you know, schedule it for a later time, I just went to InfoWars and said, well, okay, no time like the present. Here I am. And he wound up um, letting me in and talking with me to my surprise. 
Well, I mean, it's one thing, you know, and I've heard it said before in, in different ways where it's one thing to say that he's a coward, but you just describe it so well. You describe, I mean, you call him a coward. I mean, you know, he's like, how could somebody spread these lies? And we'll talk about it in a minute what, you know, if, if anything that he believes about these, about the lies, about the conspiracy theories, but how could somebody possibly do that with so, so much pain, you know, for these families? And you say, well, he, you know, he's a coward. And he's, the, the reason he's able to do this is that he does it from afar, right? Yes. He does yeah. it from afar. He doesn't see the people up close. And, and I know like in the recent trial, right? Like he kind of like, I guess he like passed a note maybe to one. It's like, hey, I'd like to talk to you or I'm sorry about this. And you mm-hmm. some ideas of that too. So I just love to know about the idea of, of that, of, of the coward. And Veronica, Veronique, Veronique De La Rosa. Veronique, yeah. Right. She has that line that was so moving to me um, that is about kind of like the, the keyboard warrior, for lack of a better word. She yeah. wrote something to the effect of the remove. This is from yours. The removal yeah. of the Internet nurtures groupthink bubbles whose members reward one another for attacking victims in the name of, quote, truth. And she says, when everybody when anybody's behind a machine, whether it's a gun or a computer or a car, a dehumanization takes place that makes it easier to commit an act of violence. That yeah. dehumanization and and of course, obviously, we I think computers obviously, but then with the guns, with what happened there, the idea of of him as a coward and being able to to remove himself from the situation. Yeah, I, I think that that is just human nature, right? We say things online, and this is one of the you know the really bad unintended consequences of social media. Right. Um, that remove that social media creates, and yet that immediately that that it grants. Mm-hmm. Um, is really an evil, you know, because it allows you to say uh, and write the most uh, wounding, personal, you know, vicious things um, without that, you know, that adage of write it down, put it in a drawer, think about it overnight, and chances are you're not going to send it in the morning. You know, it removes that thought process and that sort of human um reconsideration of one's impulsive actions, and it reaches millions of people in minutes. Um, And it also allows us to be cruel in a way that's only possible when we're not face to face. Um, And, and, you know, there are people who pick up on all of this outrage and vitriol and the algorithms in social media reward outrage, because that's engagement. So the more people engage, the more those, the algorithms boost that content. And so it just becomes this, you know, nastiness machine. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the families and many other people have really suffered from this. And Alex Jones really epitomizes this because he is actually a very kind of cosseted, protected individual. He's very wealthy now. He hires people to be around him, his lawyers, you know, to protect him from himself um, or to certainly defend him when he does get himself in trouble. And it gives him that remove permanently in his real world life too. And so, you know, that was actually pierced during these trials when Scarlett Lewis, the mother of Jesse Lewis, you know, came into court. Alex Jones came to testify in court um, in Austin, Texas this summer. And he thought that he would come in, hold forth and leave. He wouldn't have to deal with the families at all. They would be sitting, you know, at the plaintiff's table in the courtroom, but there would be no real exchange between them. But what happened was 
Scarlett wasn't finished te- finished testifying from the morning. So after lunch, when Jones showed up, she went back on the stand. And for 90 minutes, she addressed the answer to every question at him, you know, saying, truth is so important in our world. You are helping to erode truth. Um, people are more polarized than ever. You are partly responsible for that. And so it was really compelling. And, um, and, and it was also cathartic for the families to have one of their number confront him directly and, and show him the damage that he'd done and really take him to task. And, you know, he, he had successfully before and since pretty much avoided that kind of a reckoning. Right. Well, I mean, with the exception of like some some weirdly timed like jokes at Mar-a-Lago, you feel like you could be describing President Trump, you know, ex-President Trump. There are a lot of parallels. You know, right. there's um, there's, you know, Alex Jones is a diagnosed narcissist. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he sees everything in terms of how it affects him. He's constantly persecuted when, you know, someone disagrees with him or calls out the damage that he does. Oh, yeah. It's their fault. Um, you know, he, he is sort of incapable of understanding the downstream consequences of his actions. That's for sure. Well, I appreciate so much that you keep, you know, the families at the, at the heart of the book. You, you start off the book with, with the description. I mean, it is, it is incredibly hard to read. You, you describe, you know, that day in December of 2012, um, the emotional impacts you describe, you know, um, what, public record maybe some that hasn't been necessarily and you know describe that the Heslins and and the Parkers and you know Emily Parker and Jesse Heslin and Noah Posner is it Posner or Posner Posner yeah Posner you said right phony and you know it's just I mean it's absolutely impossible not to be drawn in of course even for those mm-hmm. of us who remember it at the time and then uh, you know it's very interesting you, you described the you know even like the post-tragedy the immediate post-tragedy and that I think, you know, rings true with a lot of people, even if, if we've experienced a loss, not just this, you know, horrific loss and tragedy of such epic proportions, but that's like kind of being made to be like charity cases, right? And, you know, yeah. you, talk, you write about all the people that donated things and, you know, you can use yeah. it in the town and all of that. And yeah. just, so I guess it just leads to the question about um, what you, what you discovered about the parents and, and, and wanting to be in the public spotlight, but also not, and just finding that balance over the years. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, part of what happened to them and and Lenny Posner puts it best when he says, you know, we felt like spectators to our own tragedy mm-hmm. that, you know, when when you lose your children, your loved ones in such a um, high profile, visible, you know, horrific, historically horrific way, um, you're you know, you, you're sort of out there, it becomes, um, you, you know, this very personal tragedy to them becomes a kind of national um, holding for people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and everyone feels sort of, you know, they, they're, that story is being retold in the media. Um, there was a deluge of, of media attention. Um, they started to feel like everyone wanted a piece of them, and they, they were feeling exploited. And they felt like, 
um, this charitable giving that was taking place. Um, in particular, the United Way was raising money for the United Way and its programs, some of which would benefit the families, but not all. Um, they felt like they were using the, the names of the victims to raise this money and then designating it for their own uses rather than to benefit the families themselves. And that is what was happening. And, you know, so I was documenting how that made them feel. And so the reason I did all that, you know, rehash that history was that when this came along, this conspiracy theorizing and, you know, and these falsehoods started entering the, the their radar screen, this was yet another example of them, you know, being kind of feeling preyed upon by, you know, other forces that were determined to use what they had suffered for their own ends. And in Alex Jones's case, it was to make money. Right. You, you document, um, you know, you know, very well, but obviously social media was really coming into its own in positive ways, negative and positive, just stri strictly numbers wise, which obviously a proliferation of, of these false stories that, you know, maybe that did exist before, but before, you know, it's Alex Jones on a public access channel in Austin, Texas, right, right. now, it's, you know, proliferating, but um, yeah. you know, like with like Robbie Parker, right. His daughter's Emily, who, who was a victim and, you just you just broke it down so journalistically about you know there's this this press conference right where he um, you know has this piece of paper and you know he gives a speech of sorts and just about how that became so d uh, dissected by these conspiracy theorists but you you right well here's why he had this you know what looked like a grimace or a smile here's why yeah right? and as we all know and as you described so well in this book it doesn't the facts don't matter. Right. Exactly. The facts just yeah. absolutely do not matter. And you talk about like echo chambers and all of that. I, I remember someone on CNN, I think it was kind of like a quote unquote conservative or like conservative. He was not a Trump fan. Right. Like a, like a Republican. Yeah. And he said mm -hmm. something to the effect of like, the, you know, talking about those people who who know that Trump's lies are wrong, but repeat them. Yeah. Because you know, they, they don't want to get voted out. And he said something to the effect of like um, there are worse things than a than a former politician. Which is my long yes. way, my long way of getting to the question. Like, there are worse things than not engaging. Like, what what do you see in the psychology of like this Kelly Watt and these, yeah. these figures who just why do they feel they need to weigh in on the situation? This was a tragedy. These were people killed. This is horrific. You know, why can't they just not weigh in? What is it that makes them so obsessive? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it, the, you know, the answer to that was a kind of revelation to me, too, as I looked at, you know, and, and talked with these conspiracy theorists, what they're getting from this, as Lenny says, um, you know, Noah's dad, um, is a whole new identity in a lot of cases. So you mentioned Kelly Watts. So she is a woman who has a house cleaning business in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, that was, you know, what she did for a living. And she always had a kind of sideline conspiratorial interest back in the nineties, while her own sort of home life was falling apart. She was convinced that the Tulsa public school system was being infiltrated through the curriculum by liberals and that liberal values were, were distorting, you know, the minds of, of Tulsa school kids. And, um, and she pursued this, you know, showing up at school board members' houses, disrupting meetings, parent-teacher conferences, confronting principals over textbooks, um, you know, really vociferously per, uh, pursued this conspiracy theory 
while her kind of personal life was falling apart around her. So she had a lot of disappointments in her life. She never really achieved the things she wanted to achieve in terms of a career and all of this, she told me. Um, But what happened with Sandy Hook was it sort of transformed her from, as as she described herself, a janitor in Tulsa to someone who contributed to James Fetzer's book. So she became an author and she was a researcher and she was a citizen journalist. And so she really, you know, in her mind, elevated herself. She gained a whole new circle of friends. They listened to her. They paid attention to her. They repeated her theories about the shooting, which circulated around the idea that no one can tell her who cleaned up the school after the shooting, which is an absolute falsehood. Those records mm-hmm. exist. Um, she even when told that they exist and that it was easy to find out who cleaned up the school. The company is a reputable company. They actually cleaned up after 9-11. Um, they, that she just dismissed that out of hand. And the reason isn't that she doesn't believe it. The reason is that threatens this whole world that she's built around herself, around the Sandy Hook falsehoods. You know, it's given her a completely new social group and social status. And that's true of all of these people. And they, you know, they are not ready to give these up. So it's not about truth and falsehood to them. It really is about identity and tribe and and membership in a group. Right. Very well said. Thank you. I mean, sad, sad and pathetic yeah. in, in all senses of the word. It, right. A lot of these things really speak to how lonely we are as mm-hmm. individuals. In I this came through nation. so strongly. That came through so strongly. Yeah. Just like, just a, just people mired in just a, in, depression and sadness and despair. grievance grievance and despair, yeah. but, but oh, just grievance. making up yeah. grievances right because of the despair yeah um, so you know i guess that's another pivot into alex jones one of the lines that you quote um in the book is him saying you know no 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 i'm not a businessman basically i'm in a total war and yeah. you do a great job too you mentioned so many times you know oh he goes off and he's red faced and he's going crazy and then oh, let me just give you this advertisement for a nutritional supplement how, yeah. much, how much of a huckster is, how much of it is just bottom line dollars? How much does he believe what he's spewing? I guess only Sandy he can Hook, answer that. He, but. he knows it happened. And yeah. he, I, you know, if you go back and you look at the record, he pretty much knew it happened as it was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened was even in his initial broadcast hours after the shooting occurred, Um, you could see him start to embrace this conspiracy theory, partly at the behest of his audience, people who Mm -hmm. were calling in and saying, Alex, tell us how to think about this. Wasn't this the government? Do you think this was staged, et cetera, et cetera? These shootings seem to be happening every week. And um, what does this have to do with Obama? And is Obama behind this and gun control? And so, and he also he grasped in his mind the idea that a shooting, you know, as the death toll became known, something this horrific needed to be, if you were against new gun legislation, which he, you know, vehemently is, um, you needed to fight back with something more than just I oppose. 
And so this became, you know, the chief tool in his arsenal. Let's right. just say the government planned it in service of gun control. It makes it an unfair fight. If the fight is over gun policy and legislation, and I don't take a stand on that in the book because I don't want to muddy the message of the book, which is about disinformation. Sure. Um, but if that is the debate, then fight that debate with facts. But what these theories tend to be is a, is a way of fighting unfairly. If you don't like the results of an election, you just say that the election was uh, was rigged and that you actually won. You know, if you if you don't like, you know that that this. Uh, in, in fact, Sandy Hook did not turn out to be a catalyst for meaningful gun legislation, at least at the national level. But you know, the idea here was. You, you turn it into an unfair fight by saying, no, the government plotted it, you know, so then you're not having a meaningful debate over whether this particular incident warrants new gun laws and reform. Right. Along with, of course, you know, some of the lasting traumas and, you know, so sad to read about the, the death by suicide of, of one of the of James Richmond of James Richmond. Jeremy Richmond, yeah. Jeremy, pardon yeah. me, Jeremy, you know, um, who who'd done such great work and, and such a legacy, you know, and the prologue uh, settles in and is, it is beautiful as, as much as it's sad, you know, and describing some of the, the families who've been highlighted and their their relationship with their kids and, you know, cleaning, cleaning out the rooms and the, and the tears and all the beauty. And, the, and, and towards the end before the prologue, it's about a lot of the social media, um, you know, um, lit, litigation, if you will, right? So, mm-hmm. there, you know, there are some 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 rays of, of hope there. You know, the Alex Jones has been shut down in many ways on social media, on YouTube. He's, platform, he's been deplatformed in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'd love for you to maybe to maybe end by talking about any remedies you might see. You, you know, people, some of the experts mentioned things like, you know, let's wait for comments to sink in. Like, let's give yeah. them two minutes or whatever, five minutes or 10 minutes or a day. Maybe some remedies you see for for really um, combating all of these conspiracy theories, as well as Alex Jones and, and now what, you know, with the recent um, good news. Yeah. For those the, who are against him. Verdicts against right. him. I, I think, you know, on, on the out, just starting it with Alex Jones, I think that these judgments against him, first of all, the families, if this experience has taught them anything, it's patience. And, yeah. you know, they've been involved in litigation with him for four years. Right. Um, they're not going to stop now that they've received these, these verdicts. So there will be an appeal process. Um, and then, you know, they'll actually go about the business, um, you know, provided all of this survives appeal, um, which the lawyers for the families expect it will. Um, then comes the, you know, the hunt for assets and, and you know, the effort to actually um, get paid. Right. Um, this for the families has never been about the money, of course. It's always been about, you know, showing the dangers of this kind of misinformation, the impact it has as I said, you know, not only on vulnerable people like the Sandy Hook families, but when you follow that through line and you get to the attack on the Capitol, which happened as I was finishing the book, Mm -hmm. you know, it is eroding our democracy. If we cannot rely on a bedrock of truth and fact and established research and science, then we really have nothing to base our government on. So that was their chief message. And, you know, their triumph is that they have been able to drive 
that message by using their power as survivors of this horrific tragedy to to you know um, speak out and stand up for that message and and to warn the rest of us. So that's huge, and I think the fact that we are all talking about this right now. Um, speaks not only to current events and everything that's happened in the decades since Sandy Hook, but it also speaks to the fact that we are now as a nation beginning to recognize how destructive this kind of discourse is. Um, So I think that's a triumph. Um, Like in the gun debate, you know, um, it's hard to point at this moment to substantive legislation or policy changes, but there certainly is plenty of research being done, not only into um, potential solutions, either on, you know, the policy front governing social media and how this stuff spreads online, um, but there's also a lot of research being done into individual psychology and sociology, why people grasp onto these theories and are so reluctant to let them go. And more importantly, to try and um, dissuade people from embracing these theories before they actually latch onto Uh them when it's much easier. And so there's some really important research being done, you know, to try and inoculate people against these theories before they join these sorts of um, conspiracy circles. Right. Do you do you get the impression in your reporting that that the government is keeping a close eye as far as like the government as an entity, like that, that there will be more government interference is not the word, but involvement. There's certainly a lot of debate around it. Um, You know, um, there is a bipartisan effort to address the spread of this material, particularly online Mm -hmm. and particularly the kind of falsehoods that lead to violence, um, you know, the, like the 2020 um, election conspiracy theories that led to the attack on the Capitol and and on voting um, processes and um, and polls and poll workers uh, around the country. You know, there is a recognition. I mean, if anything's going to um, draw Congress's attention, it's the fact that something might affect their ability to be reelected. So this has trained their minds. Um, So whatever it takes. um, And I think that that's a positive development. I do think they will arrive at some solutions, but it will take time. Well, I mean, it's, it's impossible, you know, it's stated explicitly sometimes and implicitly, implicitly at others, but it's impossible to read this book and not see the through lines between or connections, you know, with Trump and Alex Jones with, um, you know, from. They legitimized each other. Right. I mean, you know, from Aurora or starting with Sandy Hook to, to Douglas in Florida to, you know, to Pizzagate to QAnon and, you know, the connections are clearly there. So I appreciate you bringing the reader as close to empathy as possible for such a horrific situation that if it would have ended on in December, 2012, would would have been horrible enough, but just the years of abuse that they've gone through and, and we're able to, you know, as much as we can, like I say, get some empathy for for those people, though we have not achieved, gone through what they have. Thank you so much for this important book. And thanks for talking to me today. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure. What a pleasure. pleasure it has been to speak today with Elizabeth Williamson. Continued good luck to her with her writing and so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. 
You can now subscribe to the podcast, the Chills at Will podcast, on Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will Podcast channel. Please subscribe to both the YouTube channel and the podcast while you're checking out this episode. Or better yet, sign up now for the Chills at Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. And my last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine. And I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental. And the other song played on this episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. And both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 151 with Allison Hedge Coke. Her Dog Road Woman won the American Book Award from the Before Columbus Foundation. She is a King Chavez Parks awardee an IPPY medalist, a Penn Southwest Book Award winner, and she also was awarded an NWCA's Lifetime Achievement Award. This episode will air on November 8th. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Elizabeth Williamson, whose work, like Sandy Hook, American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, gives you chills at Will. Mm-hmm.